millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Helen Fitzgerald on her latest novel, Viral, and then a repeat of our recent interview with Francesca Kay about her latest novel, The Long Room. Helen Fitzgerald is a best-selling author of Dead Lovely and nine other adult and young adult thrillers, including My Last Confession, The Donor, and most recently The Cry, which was long-listed for the Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year. Helen has worked as a criminal justice social worker for over 10 years. Now based in Scotland, she grew up in Victoria, Australia, as one of 13 children. And her latest novel is Viral, which we're going to be talking about in the main today. Helen, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I don't normally do that last bit in these little blurbs, because I normally like to talk about the work. But um, I was one of five children, and that was bad enough, so I can't avoid asking you about growing up with 13. Uh, Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it's funny, because I didn't think it was weird until I, I became an author and then that's the headline, Helen mm-hmm. Fitzgerald is one of 13 children. And I realised, oh yeah, that's kind of strange. What I think uh, the impact it had on me is I do everything really, really fast. I mm-hmm. eat really fast, I run really fast, I have a huge sort of self-survival instinct. I remember once when we were, my dad used to take us on holidays and looking back, I think, how on earth did you do that with all these children? In a caravan and we're driving through the sort of desert in Australia and um, I'm sitting in the back and the caravan, we've got the big caravan, the huge car. Dad had sort of made, he was an engineer and he used to do all these inventions and things to make us fit mm-hmm. into places. So I think I was effectively in the boot. And we're driving along in the middle of nowhere and the car starts sort of smoking. It's going to blow up. So Dad pulls over, stops the car, turns the engine off, and then someone says, where's Hallie? <laughs> and I'd already jumped over a fence and was about two fields away. <laughs> so I think, you know, being one of, a, of such a big family just made me look after myself pretty selfishly for mm-hmm. a long time, actually. But mostly we always just were guaranteed to have good parties. So my 21st, I knew I'd let, I'd at least had 26 people. Like, yeah, you've um, not got to bother inviting anybody else, <laughs> yeah. really. So what about your writing? Has that impacted on you becoming a writer in any way? Well, I don't know. My mum was a literature teacher. I, I should say my mum didn't give birth to 13 children. She would say, please don't make it out of here. That would be just weird. I didn't do that. Um, my dad had eight children under the age of 12 when his <laughs> wife died and my mum uh, married him and then they had another five. And at the time they were very sort of strict Catholics um, about 20 years later or 30 years later, they both became kind of atheists. I think it was such a shame. They <laughs> finally discovered the joys of contraception oh, yeah, by that point. I know, crazy. <laughs> so I don't know whether it affected my writing. What did mostly was, was uh, probably did. I'm always writing about family dynamics, mm-hmm. actually. I haven't thought about it. But every single book, um, my one, number one before I can sit down to write is, have I got an interesting family Yeah problem family dynamic a diff- something different going on that's going to drive a novel all the way to the end so in that way and also because my mum was such a lover of words and language and such a prolific writer herself she'd always wanted to be a novelist but married a widower with mm-hmm. eight children so <laughs> never got around to it so she's been incredibly uh, an incredibly big influence on me um, in terms of writing and there's a there's a family dynamic central to this novel which we'll, we'll get on to mm-hmm. later on 
let's start with viral. What's it about? What's the uh, what's the the incident that kicks off the story? Well, the incident is uh, well, I started writing it when my daughter was going on holiday for school leavers trip to Magaluf with a bunch of friends, and I thought, great, you know, I'm not going to stop her going on holiday. And I didn't really know anything about Magaluf, and she goes off, and I started googling it, and started parental panic kind of set in. Obviously, there's a lot of stories that have come out of mm-hmm. Magaluf, a lot of um, behaviour that has has really ruined girls and women's lives it is mainly women and mm-hmm. girls so I, it's about a, a girl who goes to Magaluf and ends up performing a sex act in a bar um, when she's completely off her face somebody in the crowd films it uploads it it completely ruins her life mm-hmm. you know, she's, she was about to head off to medical school her mother is a, is a sheriff in Scotland that's a judge and her mother being a very well she's used to, to law enforcement being clear and simple you know mm-hmm. that there's a pun there's a the crime yes that you committed it and here is the punishment with something like this which is you know has ruined you know the family's lives are in tatters after it there is no crime that you know it's, it's not even revenge pornography it's, mm-hmm. it's involuntary pornography somebody is you know she's she's done this in public so therefore has no right to privacy um it's overseas the person who's filmed it hasn't as far as we know done it for revenge or with intent to cause harm which is what the law which is now in place yeah so this and, is a new thing isn't it so yeah, the revenge porn particularly revenge is something that now is against the law yeah 2015 in mm-hmm. april in england and wales it came in so now it's illegal to uh, publish without consent uh, intimate explicit photos if uh, it's intended to cause distress to, mm-hmm. the, to the person and that hopefully is going to come in to Scotland as well but at the moment there's no law like that in Scotland and, and as I said with the step further away involuntary uh, you know legally there's nothing you can do and that is that's an interesting distinction though because this and you mentioned you know googling about Magaluf and a couple of years ago there was this very incident somebody mm-hmm. like a viral video of uh, some, a young woman in a nightclub and clearly posting that video is i mean it can't do anything but cause distress if it's not something that's you know yeah. pornography made for a commercial purposes with the you know the full consent of everybody involved mm. even if as in this case sue the character you know nominally gives consent to it mm. happening even though she you know she's obviously you yeah, know, under it, the influence I mean, absolutely i mean what else would it do and it, <laughs> you know um but the i mean the other thing is when it's overseas that, that it makes it that yeah. bit more difficult as well but i've had really interesting discussions with lawyers you know defense lawyer prosecution lawyers talking about this as to whether you could actually prosecute someone for doing that and there would be arguments that you could make but i think it'd be mm-hmm. pretty unlikely that you'd win Obviously, the thing that propagates this, the video goes online and then it's sort of it's shared via social media. But social media is actually something that's become a bit of a preoccupation of yours. Or the last couple of novels have, have featured incidents on social media. So I suppose let's talk about social media's impact on, on this sort of thing. I mean, if this had been, you know, 10 years ago, it wouldn't have had such an impact. Yeah, that's right. I was thinking about myself, you know, when I was her age and mm-hmm. well, actually younger. And I remember I, I had this sort of um, brief fling with a boy, you know, and he then told all his friends that we had had sex by the lake uh, which we hadn't I was really young and my, I grew up in the town which was uh, had a big boys boarding school then mm-hmm. it was already horrific for girls living mm-hmm. there you know walking you felt bullied and and there were misogynists all around you all the time but you know for ages I got sort of chanted at Fitzgerald is a slut it was horrendous but that's where it stopped you know but if that had happened or if you know if something was you know had happened with me and him yeah his phone would have been there, you know, who knows what he might have done. And to think that that could still be around, you yeah. know, as well, after all those years. I mean, this never goes away. I mean, also it goes from, the, you know, the village to the, you know, to the global village, yeah. obviously. Suddenly any, anybody anywhere exactly. can see this thing. And of course, I mean, the incident in this book involves Sue and, well, there were 13 people involved in this incident. Of course, the person who invokes the fury of the, of the internet is, is only one of those people. Yeah, the woman, you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and that's uh, the... I really enjoyed writing the mother's character, Ruth. Yeah. You know, she's about 50. I think she's 52. As I said, she's a sheriff. She's a... You know, she's a strong woman, a feminist, I suppose. And... Um, uh, and goes on the rampage about everyone else involved because, you know, you've got these other 12 guys also probably 
hopefully embarrassed and ashamed, mm-hmm. you know, particularly as they didn't look too great when they, when they were filmed. Um, so there's them. There's the guy who films it, who is her number one priority. You know, mm-hmm. The guy who films it and uploads it is the one who's caused the most harm. There's the guys, PR guys, who are getting these sort of games going where um, women are being tr- treated really abominably, mm-hmm. you know, Everybody's completely drunk. They're sort of they're spitting through straws and trying to hit their breasts on the, you know. And these are the sorts of games that do go on in Magaluf. So there's a whole lot of, you know, when I've had a lot of questions of people saying, "Oh, is this a warning to young girls?" I would say the book is a warning to almost everyone else first. You yeah, know, that's involved in this. Um, most of the men, um, you know, and the bar owners and and, and everything. What also sort of struck me was that there's a whole room full of people. There's a whole bar, crowded bar full of people watching this happen and no one says, you know what, goes up to her and says, hey, hey, you know, how about we go out and get some air? Or says, you know, put your phones down. No one says anything. So it's that kind of bystander apathy that, um, of, of people who are just kind of letting things happen, which obviously are not going to be a good idea in the long run. They really do cause a lot of harm to the person involved in the end. I like that, the idea you've said that, you know, people immediately go, to say, you know, is this is the idea of this novel a warning to young women? That's always the cry that goes up when, you know, like a sex tape or something goes, you know, like people mm. are in relationships and they, you know, they might film themselves and then one of them releases it. I'm usually the man, obviously. Mm. And then, of course, everybody says, well, if you don't want that to happen, don't do it. But, of course, you know, the person that's responsible for this is always the person that, that releases it. Yeah, and, I, yeah, I mean, it's, I was thinking a lot about the taking of photographs and you know people and I think the younger generation it's almost um, it's almost a fifth base now yeah. you know you've got that you've got uh, you know what what is it it's kissing above the waist below the waist um, I've never really understood base. the base system not, 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 having, bas- yeah. not having baseball in this country <laughs> and the photo shoot though you know the, the yeah. photo that comes out and in the, in the sort of throes of passion when you really feel like connected with someone mm. and that you really trust them you must because here you are having an amazing time together you know it's, it's almost like like it's a very difficult for young people and for anyone to, to grab for the condom when they should, but it's also difficult to say, oh, you know, don't do no, let's yeah. not do that, you know, because once it's done, you don't you don't know that person really, you don't know what what the relationship is going to be like when you split up or when you're not together anymore. Obviously, the media play a part in this as well. As you talk in, in this novel, the incident goes on and obviously it becomes a news story and therefore the papers are also... It's not just something that's being shared on social media, but, you know, they're writing about it in The Guardian in the book. So what sort of part do you think the media play in it? Well, I think, I mean... I probably have to go back and look about the, over the reality of certain cases, actually. But I mean, the, in the case of Viral, she's a sheriff, and and this girl is going off to medical school, and so it's reported as as a big scandal because it's a sheriff's daughter. Sure. And, you know, how can she be commanding respect and justice when her daughter is this? You know, is that person? So I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think the huge responsibility. I, I think it's probably just as bad, <laughs> to be honest. And it's reporting what is actually happening and what people are thinking, and and, and in terms of like. Race stories and you know as they have been reported over the past it's not very different from that is it in the way that it's portraying the fault of the girl what she drank what she wore and all that sort of stuff i'm jeff dyer you're listening to resonance fm and this is little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture Let's talk about the characters in the book, then, which we obviously haven't done yet. Again, we've been talking about the, this incident and sort of comparing it to, to the similar things in real life. But let's actually get to know the, the people that you've, that you've created in the book. So Sue and Lee, who are the, the two sisters, tell us who they are. The family dynamic, I was saying earlier, I always like to find an interesting family dynamic. And the idea for, for this particular family uh, came years and years ago when I was working in a cafe in Melbourne when I was at uni. Mm-hmm. And there was a gynaecologist's office above the cafe and a woman came in one day, a white woman with a beautiful black baby um, who she'd adopted, I'm not sure from where, but we were all besotted as she was. But she was heavily pregnant. So mm-hmm. she'd adopted after years of trying to conceive uh, and being unable to, had mm-hmm. adopted a baby from overseas and then suddenly, miraculously, sort of without expecting it, obviously fell pregnant. The next time I saw this woman, uh, she was on the news because uh, social workers, social services had taken the baby away, which is what happens yeah. in this story here. And that had stayed with me for years. And she was fighting, obviously, to get this baby back. Social services were saying at the time that uh, there was no way that she would cope with two children so close in age, especially when you've got issues of cultural identity mm-hmm. and everything, and, and adoption, which you, you need. Obviously, and it's true, you know, uh, particular care and attention mm-hmm. when you're bonding with the baby and so forth. So I don't know whether 
she ever got that baby back, you know, and I always wondered about her mm-hmm. and always thought, well, if she did, that's an interesting little unit, you know, that, that she has got two daughters or children around the same age who are, you know, completely different places and, and have different ethnic identities and different cultural identities and different skin. And in the story, there's there's tension between the girls as they're, well, there wasn't before, but there is now as they're, you know, in their teenagers yeah and i just think that's normal yeah. <laughs> two girls at that age you know and what and they just fight i mean i, I always kind of in in probably all of my books make out relationships at the start to be really really awful but actually when you know when i get to the end of the book you realize oh that's actually probably just kind of quite normal for teenage girls you know mm-hmm. sue was a swat she was studying really hard and it's also i've got two kids myself and a lot of people say this that the second one will kind of tend to do exactly the opposite of what the first mm-hmm. one did so sue's very well behaved but it's also about how Ruth's mother had to fight for Sue. And, you know, so she spent, you know, nine months of pregnancy with yeah. Leah. She spent that fighting to get Sue back and has been ever since just overly protective of her and probably a little bit neglectful of yeah. her biological daughter, which I thought was also a sort of different take. You might expect the opposite, but mm-hmm. actually she's almost favoured Sue all her life because of that fear of losing her and that fear of being criticised for not being a good mother to her. So let's talk about Ruth and Bernie then as well. Let's introduce them. Yeah, so Ruth is, um, they met while she was travelling in America. He is um, from uh, Portland and is a, a, in an orchestra. I don't know why I picked that. I just, I, I had, I've got an Uncle Bernie and my Uncle Bernie, we, I used to go and stay with on holidays and, and he is the kindest, loveliest man and actually reminds me of my husband mm. as well. The nice guys in my books, uh, I usually, that's who I think of, you know, <laughs> usually my husband or Uncle Bernie. Although my husband says that, that I always write the serial killers as him. <laughs> That's not true, I don't think. Um, so she's a, she's a formidable woman. You know, I kind mm. of... I, I've, I've met uh, sheriffs in Scotland, you know, and a few women, and, I, and I've been in the courts a lot with my job, and I've sort of met characters like her where she's scary, you know, and very, very powerful, um, whereas he's very gentle, and I thought music was and, and calming and is very supportive to her career. So, yeah, so that, and, but they're absolutely and completely in love. You know, that, it works for them, their relationship. And, I mean, there's always been a tension there between them two about this idea that, that Ruth might, favour Sue over Lee but then obviously once the incident happened Sue goes missing um, that's obviously intensified yeah, that's right. And I think, well, he's always he's always the the voice of reason the whole way through their lives, really, mm-hmm. and and knows that that he. It's a I think it's a great partner, someone who uh, what could possibly be seen as your worst characteristics. Actually, he gets that that you know she's a fighter. She'll fight for things, and and she's always done that. And so he gets that, but but tries to moderate. You know, so he's always there with you know sort of calm her down and hang on. But are you are you doing the right thing here? But I don't think that um, the arguments they have actually are very different from, well, arguments that I would have with my partner. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you seem to be, but hang on, you did, at that age, you were doing this with that one. And, you know, you're constantly sort of readjusting or rethinking yeah. how you're doing your parenting, you know, with one that, you know, when, because you've become more experienced, you've become probably more relaxed um, and all of that stuff with the, with the second one. Yeah. I mean, you've already touched on this a little bit, but we should talk about one of the, you know, the themes of the book is the idea of, um, the difficulties of adopting somebody from another culture as well. So is that something you particularly wanted to? Yeah, but I was about? really nervous about doing it because I just know that I'm not an expert on sure. it, and uh, and it's a difficult. Uh, I think at the time uh, the, when I was talking about the Australian woman, it was uh, it was very high on the agenda that social work was saying it's not a good idea to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I my personal feelings are, are difficult because my brother has adopted from from overseas, and and I know that. Uh, He's a great parent, and and they've also had a lot of work to do to make sure that she feels that she knows her culture and they're going back all the time. It's something I wouldn't do, but, I mean, I don't want to... As you can tell with me stuttering, I find it a really difficult thing to talk about because I'm not comfortable with it enough, Mm -hmm. I suppose. But that's why I want to write about it because I think that that's how... Ruth felt, you know, that they just sort of, you just sort of do something when you're desperate for a baby and then you don't realise actually all of the issues that it might involve and all all the areas that might sort of come up as a result of it through this child's life. I did do a lot of going onto forums and so forth and um, listening to people who'd been adopted from South Korea and watched a great documentary about twins uh, one had been adopted to America and one I can't remember where, where they were the other side of the world and then they kind of found each other and it was just really interesting 
listening to what people were saying. I think adoption fascinates me because I think it is always, it's always there. It does make you a different, your experience of life different, your experience of your family different. The uncomfortableness I'm feeling and, and through that book is why I wanted to write about it, I suppose. The scenes set in Magaluf, I thought they're particularly um, vivid. Mm. How well researched were they? Well, I didn't go over there, but my daughter helped me. I dedicated this book to her because she helped me with... uh, There's all sorts of little details in there, and and I was being the parent who was panicking constantly in touch with her the whole time. So uh, there's little details like the MAGA club pass and Mm -hmm. um, looky-looky guys and the um, chicken nuggets. uh, They call the the girls white trash, Mm -hmm. I think it's meant, meant to mean. Uh, and all sorts of little details like that, and also their daily schedule, which are just you know, and the packing of twelve bikinis, you know, a bikini all of those day. rules that Lee had oh. that Sue had to abide by, just amazing. Yeah. I know that she gave to Sue. <laughs> yeah, well, I um, and you know, I think she was she was actually she was meaning to be a good sister. Yeah. I mean, Leah, um, Sue has had a pretty boring life. She's just been studying the whole time, and, and Leah's like, oh come on, you know, this is your chance. And you mm-hmm. know, one of the big things was you got to lose your virginity. You know, let's go, Maga, Luf, let's let's get you a man there. So by the end of the two weeks, there, this has become. And, and there's a real peer pressure thing. This is really built up, and mm-hmm. almost the whole resort has heard about this girl who wants to lose her virginity. So it sort of added to the whole, uh, to why it happened, you know. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Helen Fitzgerald and we're talking about her novel Viral. Helen, before we broke up in the first part, I was quite surprised when you said about we were talking about the the adoption from another culture and you were saying about, you know, how nervous you were about writing about that. Because in your day job, um, you're a social worker. And so I assumed that this was something you, you would have come across quite a lot at work. Of course, you're actually you're a criminal justice social worker, of course. So let's talk about what that is. A criminal justice social yeah. work. It's probation service. In Scotland, social work still run uh, probation. I don't know whether they used to here, actually, mm-hmm. but uh, it's always been a part of social work. So in my office, um, there's the criminal justice social workers. In my office, there's about 10 of us. We supervise people who are on parole and probation, supervised release orders, um, lifers, things like that. And we also do um, background and sentencing reports for the court, which are sort of mini biographies, which I love doing um, but in our office we also do have the adoption and fostering team and the child protection team and downstairs the adult services team so I've talked to colleagues in probation in England and they're quite jealous of the that we still mm. have that because we it's a it's a nice uh, it's a nice value base um, and also the communication between the teams because they're all usually quite often quite interrelated you know in different teams and we know a lot about each other's clients and it's very very helpful so you know it would be easy for me if I wanted to move to child protection I could you know my qualification is in social work but I will never (laughs) ever do that criminal justice is nice and clear you know we we have rules we follow what the court tell us to do it's it's um not everyone hates me I think when you're in child protection everyone hates you I really enjoy the job it's interesting there's a there's a moment that made me laugh when um Ruth, when they go to visit the guy who they think, who's been released from prison, who they think might be involved, and he mentions his social worker, and, and she sort of says, yeah, I, I sort of shared his the sort of distaste for the methods of his of his social worker, which I thought was yeah, quite funny. Yeah, a lot of sheriffs really can't stand social workers, and they, and they sort of tell us, you know... I did an event the other day, actually, the one where I had a coughing fit as well, but there was a sheriff in the um, audience, and, and the bit I read out from Viral was the bit with Ruth where she's in the court and um, it's just come out all over the papers the day before and she's decided I've, I've got to keep uh, my sort of power and I've got to keep my cool. She goes into work and people are all laughing about it and making comments and she, she realises I can't keep doing this job just now. You know, I have to take some leave. But he came up to me afterwards and he said, oh my God, social work. I mean, the words that you use, what's a criminogenic need? You know, <laughs> and so they, yeah, 
her, her views are sort of mirrored from a, lot of, a few sheriffs who I know who sort of mock us a bit for our jargon and our touchy-feely sort of attitude. <laughs> Again, that work, you write about crime, that work, you know, inevitably must influence what you write about. But, I mean, I guess also it's... It's a difficult line to tread. You know, you obviously have to... You, you obviously can't reveal too much no. about the actual people that you're working with. And I don't think I've ever actually revealed anything about any of them, which mm-hmm. really surprises me. I could, Especially because I left for about four years, and I could have then, but I've never done that. I've, and, uh, and it's not at the time when I wasn't working. I just wouldn't do that to anyone, actually. Um, but I, I think more what it is, because I found some some writing that I did when I was 18 and uh, or around about then or in my early 20s, you know, a whole bunch of short stories and poems, which were really bad. But it was the same. I was writing the same stuff and the same kind of, sort of exactly the same tone, exactly mm-hmm. the same black humour about someone who's committing a crime and the victim. So I, I don't... Uh, I mean, it obviously influences me. It keeps my mind alive. Mm-hmm. I love hearing the stories that I hear, and I love the job. Um, and when I left, I felt really bored, um, so I wanted to go back. But and also things like the court scenes. You yeah. know, I know how the lang- I know how it goes, and I know how uh, psychology reports mm-hmm. read. I know, yeah. So that, all of that is very helpful. But um, I've never used anyone in particular. Well, you mentioned the cause. I was going to say, I mean, obviously in, in the first part we talked about the idea of the, the viral incident came from, you know, researching things that had already happened. The idea for the, you know, the woman who was adopting the child, it was an incident you saw. But like, what other parts of, of viral would you identify as being, you know, directly influenced by, by the day job? By the day job, well, probably the court scenes mm-hmm. mostly, um, and that was just the language and the the way that the lawyers interact. Uh, um, the Silver Fox guy, I haven't met. I mean, he's not a person, but he's a kind of composite of, of lawyers that I've yeah. seen in action, and it's very rare that you see uh, entertaining lawyers in court, but there, occasionally when you get one, it's like, wow. In fact, I need to just go into court more often and just sit there, and I, I encourage everybody to do that. It's a, it's fascinating. Um, I must admit, as soon as, as soon as he appeared in the book, I immediately started picturing George Clooney in my head, and then, of course, <laughs> yeah. he appears later <laughs> in the, later right, in the novel. Too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We talked briefly in the first part about the idea of, like, you know, how what has happened to Sue is not technically against the law, although things like things are changing and hopefully things will change more so. And this is obviously something that Ruth is is astonished by and 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 sort of upset by. And you know, the novel goes in a you know in an interesting direction in regards to that. But I mean, what what do you think should be? Where should we go with that? Well, I, I think that, like we were saying before, that there, there must there must be an acknowledgement that somebody filming and uploading something like that and uh, it is intending to cause harm. Mm-hmm. And okay, it's not... They didn't know... You might not know the person. That might not be a revenge element. But um, surely that could be argued. Isn't it just a small step away from the revenge pornography? So... Yeah, I, th- I think it should be. And I don't know how many cases there are and how many people have come forward with similar mm-hmm. things or tried to take stuff like that to court, but uh, I can imagine that we'll have more and more of it, actually. And I think it is just a small step away. Again, we talked about the sort of the encroachment of social media and how that's changed things, but going back to your day job, how have you seen that change in terms of not necessarily this same sort of incident happening, but how has... How was just the idea? There's a, a, another, you know, scene in the book where um, where Ruth accuses somebody of contempt of court because they're posting something to Facebook in in the court and that. You know yeah. how how often does this happen? Oh, that happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah, you get told off. For, yeah. Um, in terms of, of my work and changes, I, I think in criminal justice, you know, we're seeing a lot of internet offenders. You know, it's mm-hmm. just a, a huge number, and we're having huge issues with how to uh, monitor and police that. You know. How can you uh, huge safety agreements and contracts that you draw up about? I'm not supposed to talk. I suppose it's all right to talk about the logistics of the job. I won't yeah. get in job, but you know we check devices and and, uh, and we're not very well skilled at that. Yeah. I mean, I, I could go. Around, I mean, I don't even know how to check my own really. You know, so suddenly we've been told you have to go around and, and check phones and. Um, smart televisions and all sorts of things and it's almost I just wish I think we're going to need a lot more training than yeah we're I mean getting. the pace of change as yeah. well this has happened so quickly That's the so technology fast changes and, and the reality is can you stop anyone using the internet I mean how's anyone it's not a good idea for anyone to not have a job you know if if they are particularly motivated to work or even if they're not you know a job is a good idea what job can you actually do nowadays without requiring the use of a computer 
there's a lot of um, questions and issues that are coming up because of all the uh, internet offences that are happening. Yeah. I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I'm going to ask you to, to read a bit from Viral, if you would. Okay, I will. I'll read. Uh, I haven't practised this, so please forgive me if it... Um, and it's uh, it's kind of towards the end. Sue's, who's been hiding for a long for about a week, I think, or several days anyway, is on a bike <laughs> near Barcelona. Um, and as we've talked about it, she was adopted from South Korea and she's never tried to look for her biological mother. But in this period of hiding, when she's completely on her own, she starts questioning who she is, um, which I think is the whole point of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, And the whole point about public shaming is mm-hmm. about, is this now what defines me? Who am I? So a natural story for this was that eventually she would be asking the question about her roots. So she's on a bike. Okay. After ten minutes on the road and several on the gravel, avoiding scary lorries with flashing lights and beeping horns, a sign says it's nine kilometres to Barcelona. I stop, irritated, because I thought I was heading away from civilization, not back into it. But then I notice that there's a picture of an aeroplane on the list of destinations. I stare at the wee plane and wonder if the supernatural exists for the first time since Michael O'Hare's mother's statue of the Madonna winked at me. Perhaps this is a sign, not a sign. I continue in the same direction because I have just made a snap and inspired decision. I'd planned to hide out a while longer. I'd hoped that time would dilute my desire to hurt the man who filmed me, that time and space would stop me disappointing Mum all over again by breaking the law, by breaking his neck, by slitting his throat, by poisoning him with drain cleaner. The picture of the aeroplane has cleared my head. I'm going to the airport. This is the perfect and possibly the only time. I'll call them once I land in Seoul. I'll explain that some good has come out of all this. I'll be assertive and tell them this is something I've needed to do for a long time. I think they might understand now. I think they'll be relieved that I'm out of sight for a while. The plan gathers detail as I gain speed. When I arrive, I'll buy a smart trouser suit and I'll book into a hotel and I'll scrub myself clean. I'll go and visit retired officer Moon Ji-Hoo and I'll pay him to tell me what he knows. Then I'll go to the squat my mother smokes crystal metamorphine in, or to the street she begs on, or to the dark alley where she grasps her near-empty bottle of soju, or to the prison or mental institution where she repeatedly cuts at a designated portion of her upper left thigh. I'll go to her and I'll tell her who I am. She won't have seen the sex tape. No way. She probably doesn't even have the internet. A fine notion, in fact. People existed without the internet for centuries and survived. Poor people, like my birth mother, still do. I, too, can live without it. I decide to declare it out loud. I hereby swear that I will never go online again. The oath brings on the desire to make others, which I yell as I pedal. I hereby swear that I will never go to Magaluf again. I hereby swear that I will never perform sex acts in public again. And I stop at the side of the road, take out the two bottles of sangria I bought at the village shop, and toss them over the fence into a field. I hereby swear that I will never drink or take anything that results in the handing over of my faculties ever again. Pedalling faster now, due to the onset of an unparalleled excitement, and perhaps because I'm mine as the weight of the wine, I picture my birth mother's face when I tell her who I am. It'll crumple, and then she'll spurt tears of agonised guilt. I feel I can actually see her, not her face exactly, but the shape of her and her response. She's begging for my forgiveness. She's saying she knows it's no excuse, and she doesn't deserve or expect me to forgive her, but she had no choice, you see. You are so beautiful, because she was destitute and still is, doesn't even have the internet, and she was all alone with no family and still is. And she had and still has at least two other serious health problems that made make motherhood impossible. She's blind and a paraplegic, for instance. After she's said all this and is on her knees with her hands pressed together as if in prayer, I will look down on her with Dalai Lama serenity, and this is what I will say. I forgive you. Her tears of guilt will recede and pride will surface. Her face will redden and her heartbeat will quicken. She'll manage to stand and start talking with speed, confidence, but mostly gratitude. You forgive me? Really? Sue Jin, you are good, so good, and I am not, because I put you in a basket and I abandoned you. I should have fought for you, but I couldn't for so many excellent reasons, like the paraplegia. Oh, I need to edit the scene, because she wouldn't be able to kneel or stand up. For so many excellent reasons, like the blindness. Oh, she wouldn't have said you're so beautiful, because she wouldn't have been able to see me. Reasons like the leprosy. Sue Jin, you grew inside me, inside this hopeless and undernourished outcast. She'll put her hands on my shoulders. 
It's a myth that it's contagious. Just prejudice. But I see you know that already because you are highly educated, exceptionally clever and know everything there is to know about all the medical conditions in the universe. And she'll stretch her arms straight to hold me there and absorb from a comfortable distance because she simply can not get over that the incredible woman standing in front of her is Su Jin. I go by Su, I'll say, and she'll ask if she can use the gin and I'll say no because I make my own decisions, me, and I'm Sue. I'm Sue of 48 hours ago. Sue is who's 100% sane, not even 0.015% crazy, who's respectful and purposeful and who will study medicine somewhere more prestigious than Edinburgh and who'll go on to win a Nobel Prize for curing something highly horrible, but not leprosy because someone did that already. And you will have the treatment now that I've found you, birth mother. I will take you to the hospital immediately and I will pay Western money to rid you of this affliction, which strangely and thankfully has caused no scabby legions that I can see. Um, where was I? I'm the Sue who's going to win the Nobel Prize for curing dementia. So when you start forgetting things you would never ever forget, like where you left the soju, I'm the Sue who won the prize for discovering the meds that mean you can remember where it is. It's in the garage at the side of your villa otherwise known as the side pocket of your walk-and-rest tri-wheel shopping trolley. I'm smiling. Haven't done that for a while. My success will ease the suffering my birth mother has endured due to poverty, homelessness, mental illness, addiction, delete as appropriate, because I am proof that her genes are from Waitrose. It's just her luck that's co-op. I can't stop smiling. Comforting her will comfort me. Easing her guilt will restore my virtue. Airport five kilometres. This is happening at last. I'm on my way. I've been talking to Helen Fitzgerald. We've been talking about her novel Viral, which is out now from Faber. So Helen, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you very much. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archives at littleadams.com. Francesca Kay's first novel, An Equal Stillness, won the Orange Award for New Writers and was nominated for the Authors Club First Novel Award and for Best First Book in the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. Her second novel, The Translation of Bones, was long-listed for the Orange Prize for Fiction and her third novel, The Long Room, we're going to be talking about today. So, Francesca, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. A real pleasure. So tell me in your words how you describe The Long Room, what it's about. Uh, the Long Room is essentially the story of a rather isolated young man whose job is to listen to other people's conversations and who spends a great deal of time with his head in the clouds in a sense, eventually finding, but in the loneliness and, and isolation that he feels, eventually drives him to a course of action which is really disastrous for him. 
and you know, brings a, brings about a, 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 you know, a catastrophic result. Let's talk about the setting. So this is the it's nineteen eighty one. The novel is set, so it's the the Cold War. I guess is just sort of starting hotting up. Reagan and Thatcher are in power, and the IRA is still operating around London. This is the the Falklands War is sort of on the horizon. Let's talk about that time because it's we're obviously like quite quite a distance from that now. Yes, for some of us, it's it's not exactly ancient history, but for a lot of people, it is extremely remote. It might as well be that it is a remote period of history. Um, I thought though that it does have certain resonances for us today, and I especially in the sense that that unexplained anxiety that lurked in the background all the time, which I think many of us who were who were alive then sort of remember, uh, which was to do with that sense that the world was a very dangerous place. I think we have that feeling again now. So, um, or perhaps we've never lost it, but it's very acute at the moment. So there are things about that time, that time just on the cusp of the Falkland War when things were changing very fast in British society, which have a certain kind of, which have certain parallels the modern world. I wouldn't want to over-labor them. The novel is partly set in that period because it just interested me uh, to go back and think about it uh, at a very different time, a very different culture, but also particularly a time long before anybody thought about computers or personal computers or computers used for surveillance. And so the story, which is set in a sort of fictional rather shady kind of espionage setting would not have worked if it had been a modern setting with all the kind of devices that must now exist. And not just computers in terms of their use in sort of mass surveillance now, but you you do mention early on in the book about the expense of phone calls. This is the time before mobile communications, before text messages and things where people, you know, communicate online very cheaply, like we're doing now on Skype. And so people's use of telephones was much more circumspect. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's very difficult, even, though, I mean, I, I was a young adult at the time, but to try to recover some of the feeling of that, the details of that time, is quite difficult. Because things that we have completely forgotten, like the way that people used to say we can't talk now because it's costing too much, or wait until you know, only after eight o'clock could you possibly manage to call your friends. It is an extraordinarily different world, and yet it is only you know 35 years ago, a little bit less than that. It is extraordinary that the rate of change. So we've set what the time of the novel is. So it's in a definite time and a definite place. We'll talk about what the long room is in a moment, where it's sort of mainly set, but there's also this feeling to me of almost like a timelessness because it's set in this bureaucratic building, which is sort of redolent of things from like Kafka, but then right up to like films that were around at that time in the early 80s, like Brazil, for instance, and and Orwell and stuff. I mean, was that deliberate? Yes, it was. Um, It was, although I said it very specifically in that year, and pretty much in the last two weeks of the year, 1981, that was more. That was a structural device, really, because I think that the the probably you know, offices hadn't really changed. They probably were much like that during the you know immediately after the war. That kind of slightly grey, slightly drab sense of of a, of a city that was kind of closing on itself during winter and uh, where the sort of tedious details of life, um, that probably hadn't changed. And yes, certainly I did have in mind the the people who have written so incredibly well about that before. And, I mean, we, funnily enough, we should just say that it's, it's set literally now, like a couple of weeks before Christmas, isn't it? Which is a coincidence to when we're, to when we're recording it. But this is ex- exactly when we're talking, a couple of weeks before Christmas. <laughs> Yes, it is precisely that. Where so, although people, some people are, uh, the, the protagonist is worried about um, life and love, and, and but other people are worried about whether they bought sellotape or, um, which is actually probably true for most of us right now. Or whether they're not going to be able to get out and get Christmas presents on their lunch hour. Yes, yes. I mean, I think that the that that of course. I find that fascinating. That the big drama of life always goes on against lots and lots of little dramas. Um, whatever that one's personal drama is, other people's drama is just as important to them at the time, and they carry on, and they're no less important in a sense. Although I try, you know, I make them, I hope, slightly comic, 
um, you know, anxieties about how we fit the turkey into the two small fridges and so on. But that the texture of daily life is part of the novel, I hope. Let's talk about the Institute then, which is the the place where all this is taking place. It's right there that's quite an anonymous name for it. I mean, you don't sort of describe it as being as belonging to any you know real life agency that we would know, MI5 or MI6 or whatever. It's just again this anonymous bureaucratic place. Yes, I, I didn't think about it in any kind of specific terms. I wasn't particularly interested in the sort of minutia, the business of espionage or spying. I'm interested in that shadowy world, which is is a fictional world, the fictional world, like you know, Spyland, um, most famously and probably best mapped out by Le Carre, but lots of other people too, Graham Greene or or earlier Conrad, that sort of twilight land which nobody quite knows what's going on, um, most memorably and and brilliantly summed up in T.S. Eliot's phrase, which has been borrowed by many other people since, of a wilderness of mirrors. That's what interested me, and that's the perfect setting for somebody who doesn't really know where he is, a setting where he isn't sure, nobody knows what anybody's doing, nobody really knows what the truth is, and nobody knows who they can trust. Very isolating place. I was going to ask you about other literary influences, and obviously this is more Le Carre than it is Ian Fleming, but it is interesting, again, even though we're talking about this being set 35 years in the past, 1981, the feeling that comes from, from the novel of those sort of Le Carre novels and the Graham Greene almost means it could be set really at any time between the sort of post-war period. You know, it could be one of those, like The Third Man or something, or any of those sort of novels set in Berlin after, you know, during the Cold War. It has that that same feeling it's interesting to sort of think about actually how little the world changed the world has changed so much more in the le- in the next 35 years than it did then it felt like the world was very similar in 81 than what it would have been in like 61 i'm sure you're right i'm sure you're absolutely right the pace of change has just been absolutely extraordinarily speeded up um in the last 30 years so yes it could it could have been set at any of those at any of those periods it wasn't I wasn't really, and of course I have read the carry with much admiration, but I wasn't really thinking about the good writer, great writers of spy fiction when I wrote the novel. I was just much more interested in a character under pressure, and that seemed to be a very good setting for um, that character. But I, it is probably for exactly the same reasons that so many people, so many other people have used it, that land, that spy land as I call it. I mean, you mentioned earlier as well that you, you're not so bothered about the sort of minutiae of the, the the sort of spying, the equipment, the techniques, but you do go into, you do cover that, and it does seem very, very authentic. So let's perhaps talk about research you did. I know your, your earlier novels were like quite densely researched, so how how did that go for this one? Well, I did really make it up. I mean, it just seemed too difficult to find out what might really have happened, and it's so long ago. And whatever techniques there might have been then, certainly wouldn't be the same techniques now. So I made up the whole in the, the details, which I hope sound very convincing about the length of tapes and the way that people do things and how they change their tapes around. is entirely invented, entirely imaginary, and it's but it is as specific there because the shadowy spyland is also marked by certain kinds of specific detail as any setting is, and so the detail is there to make it convincing details about, say, notice boards and instructions from security and what you can't and can't do and so on. But that, you know, that's the fun of fiction, isn't it, making it all up? No, absolutely, but it, it is incredibly convincing, most definitely. Good, good. Well, I mean, that's a lovely thing to hear because I feel that that is, you know, that's halfway to, I mean, that is the best thing that any writer can be told that the reader can can believe in that world at least for a little while. I do think in in some respects that that sort of reliance on the, especially when it's used, like for somebody like Ian McEwan or somebody who I love, but how the the way that his novels are so well researched for ages, he's almost put out as part of the you know as part of the publicity for them when it's fiction and it doesn't matter if you make it all up. I think, I mean, you, you said my previous novels were heavily researched. Well, that's nice to think that that's how they come across, but it's not really the case. Although I did in the first novel, which is all about painting, I researched specifically techniques, 
because I had no idea before I started how one might fresco a wall. And it was really, really interesting to learn about the actual nitty-gritty of painting techniques, brushes and turpentine and all those sorts of things which one can read about. Um, so that I found that fascinating, but, and I had been anyway interested in the art of that period, so I you know, read a lot more around it. But research isn't really perhaps my strongest point. I, I think it is good to check the certain facts are, are accurate because no reader can believe the rest of the story if they can see a glaringly obviously inconsistent untruth. But much more is the product of invention than the product of assiduous research. <laughs> I'm Jonathan Meads, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's spend some time talking about Stephen, then, who's the protagonist. Now, I've said we're obviously not going to give. This is a, you know, it's 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 a it's a thriller. It's it has a, you know, we don't want to give away what happens at the ending. But let's perhaps talk about Stephen, who he is, and I guess some of his background. Um, well, Stephen is is young, but rather old, but rather an, a rather elderly young man. He's only twenty eight. He's clever, um, but he's a bit of a dreamer. He's the sort of person who has read a very great deal of poetry, but not really seen a very great deal of life. Um, he does have aspirations to see more of life. He has ambitions. He crucially, he really wants to be loved. So when he is recruited into the Institute, he sees this as, a, as an opportunity after a rather undistinguished university career and a, and a sort of the school kind of school background where he would have been you know, possibly top of the form in, in exams, but certainly not in, te- in, in levels of popularity or you know, being the captain of the hockey team or any of those other things. So he's, he feels that he is ready for the kind of excitement in life that um, he feels every reason to believe he deserves. Um, but life in the Institute is so boring and he is so isolated that and, you know, his, his sort of sense of poetry and his sense of himself and so on are very much sapped by what, by, by what his life is. So his, what goes wrong for him is his attempt to change that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's quite funny at the beginning that contrast between the excitement he was expecting in a life of you know working in espionage and the actual mundane reality. Yes, I mean, when he has to spend his half his time having his colleagues saying who's going to make sausage rolls for the Christmas party, but he still you know, he he believed that he was going to be more James Bond than the, the sadder characters that you were talking about earlier. That's what he was rather hoping for, and what he got was uh, a big disappointment to him. And then his mother, Coralie, is also a character in the novel and gives us a sort of a, a backstory for, for Stephen as well. So how much of, could we talk about a little bit about that? Well, Coralie, I, lo- I loved Coralie. Coralie just like, seemed to me that somebody who was um, practically dictating her own story into my ear because her voice seemed very clear. She's there partly because... She produces. She gives another dimension, another human dimension to the novel. But also through her, you can. I, I wanted to be able to convey Stephen's own past through her. You know, she, her account of the things that have happened. Quite not in a great deal of detail, but the fact that she's a, a single mother and he, you know, they lived a rather sort of straightened and possibly rather solitary life. The two of them. She's not very good at expressing her emotions, although she certainly loves him and he loves her. But neither of them has probably ever said that. And then we haven't mentioned um, the object of, of Stephen's love, really, in the description at the beginning, although it's not giving too much away, because it is in, it is in the, uh, the, the blurb of the book. So 
Helen, who is the, the, the wife of one of the targets of the Institute. So Stephen is monitoring somebody and he, he basically falls for his wife. So tell us something about that situation. Yes, I mean, he's excited when he gets given this particular case because it looks like, and it could be a very exciting case, it looks as though he might be uh, being help, asked to help with the investigation of a, of a, of a traitor. I don't keep still by that, but in fact, the whole the case itself just produces nothing while he's listening to it, except for the fact that he hears much more of the target's wife than he hears of the target himself, and the target's wife completely captivates him. She captivates him by with her voice, by her singing, by her piano playing, and this man who is just hungry for love falls for her, although he has no idea what she looks like. Um, but of course, he invents as the novel goes on, or as the novel begins and, and as it continues, he invents her character very convincingly to himself. Um, and among the things that he is convinced of is that she's very unhappy and she is being is, is is trapped in a marriage that he is sure is if not actually violent at least you know potentially damaging to her uh, and he feels that it is his that it will be his um, role to rescue her he's basically crazily in love with her and so there's two i think there's there's two parallel ideas here so you've got this you know, Stephen in in quite in what's like you know quite a I think this is sort of an ironic look at quite a common trait which is this idea of of a man who feels that he needs to rescue a woman from a situation but also the other layer of that the sort of ironic layer of that is is he's like this you know sort of morally compromised guy who's who's basically only knows about it because he's spying on them so he's no hero. Yeah, well, you've exactly got it. You know, it's it's a, it's a world of full of paradoxes, isn't it? Um, you've you're, you've exactly hit it. I mean, he's no hero in a sense. Although his motives, in uh, uh, as they relate to the to the woman, are you know, pure at heart. Um, he's not a creepy stalker, but he is, of course, you know, he he has deceived himself um, in in a very serious way with this. But it, nonetheless. It is love. For, I mean, he is in love, and, and, and love is not always a question of being reciprocated or even being clear-sighted, is it? So he you know, he feel he has fallen in love, essentially with the voice. And we all know really quite how important the voice can be in terms of uh, giving a sense of what a person is like. Um, you only need to just be talking to somebody on the radio or uh, on, on a telephone call. You get a sense of that person, don't you? Which may be completely different from the actual reality. And in his case, you know, he's he's very easily you know, going to fall over the, the the borderline between between just enjoying the sound of her and feeling that somehow there's some message that she conveys to him through what she sounds like. It's interesting that you say he's not a creepy stalker because although on one level that's true, I mean, he's officially sanctioned creepy stalker. He's about as creepy a stalker as you can imagine, I think. Do you think? Do you think so? I hope you didn't think he was too creepy because he's not, of course... No, not himself, and I mean the situation that he finds himself in because he's implicitly, professionally a creepy stalker. Oh, the situation, yes, yes. Yes, of course he is. Of course he is. Of course he is. But I mean, what he's not necessarily, in for the purposes of the novel, examining the motivation all around. I mean, you know, this is the job that they're all doing, and they're just doing it. We, we, the readers, can make our own minds up about the amorality of it, the amorality of the whole of the whole situation. Um, but in in his pursuit of the woman that he's in love with, he certainly wouldn't harm her or. or in that sense, I mean, he's not a creepy stalker, Edison, of her. I think that, that that's an interesting contrast to the theme of the book, though, in that he's, his lack of awareness and also his lack of sort of concern about the amorality of the job put up against, again, as I said, his sort of like almost entitled belief that, that he should be doing something to, to sort of save her, I think. Those two things rub up against each other. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes, I mean, there are there are moments in which he wonders about the morality of his job. I mean, he becomes, she, she, she the wife of the target, is not the only person he is um, compelled to listen to. 
and the other people that he listens to are in a sense also becoming um, his friends. He's in love with one of them, but the, I mean he's not with her. But the others, he's he's tipping over the the edge of the of being professional, um, and becoming more involved say, in one particular old man's ill health. So there's an implicit comment there, isn't there? These people should not be being listened to. They have nothing of any interest to say. So he doesn't bother to report anything that they say. Uh, he, you know, because he knows that it's a, it's a, um, it's a pointless exercise from that point of view. But he, you know, he continues to listen to the details of their lives because he's fond of them. That's not to say that this is a, a morally uh, justifiable position, but it's the amoral world in which they're. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.